This is Encounter on VOA. Here's Carol Castiel. Welcome to Encounter on the Voice of America. On this edition of the program, accountability for possible Russian war crimes and crimes against humanity in Ukraine. Hello again, I'm Carol Castiel. Bucha, Kramatorsk, Mariupol, once obscure place names, are now synonymous with savage atrocities committed by Russian troops on innocent Ukrainian men, women, and children. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky and Poland's Prime Minister have accused Russia of genocide. Referring to the systematic massacres on the ground, U.S. President Joe Biden has also concluded that Russian President Vladimir Putin may be committing genocide in Ukraine. Under international law, genocide is, quote, the intent to destroy, in whole or in part, a national, ethnic, racial, or religious group. According to UN Convention, this includes through killings, serious bodily or mental harm, inflicting lethal conditions and measures to prevent births, among other means, closed quote. Whether or not such brutal systematic killings will eventually be deemed as genocide, one thing is certain, Moscow's unprovoked invasion of Ukraine, replete with attacks on innocent civilians, is itself a crime of aggression, as defined by the International Criminal Court, or ICC, which tries individuals for actions under international law. According to the Washington Post, the Biden administration is debating how much the U.S. government can and should assist an investigation into Russian atrocities in Ukraine by the ICC in The Hague, concerned that the court could be used or misused to prosecute American forces, the United States did not ratify the Rome Statute, which created the ICC in 1998. Russia is also not a member. However, according to The Economist magazine, the Geneva Conventions, which Russia has signed, outlaw war crimes, including willful killing, causing great suffering and targeting civilians. In that vein, the hundreds of alleged summary executions in Bucha would count. The bombing of a theater in Mariupol, where the word for children was written in large enough letters for Russian forces to see from the sky, would count. The targeting of the train station in Kramatorsk, which resulted in the deaths of more than 59 civilians attempting to flee for their lives, would count. Currently, several international entities have begun to take action to investigate war crimes, the International Criminal Court, the International Court of Justice, the UN Human Rights Council, from which Russia was recently suspended, and the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, the OSCE. According to a Washington Post article, the OSCE is willing to share its findings with the International Criminal Court, national courts, and others that have jurisdiction over alleged war crimes and crimes against humanity. Ongoing reporting by the media in Ukraine also contributes to real-time documentation. For more on the allegations of war crimes in Ukraine and how senior Russian officials can be held accountable, we turn to two distinguished experts. Michael Newton is professor of law and political science at Vanderbilt University in the state of Tennessee. From January 1999 to August 2002, he served as senior advisor to the ambassador at large for war crimes issues in the U.S. Department of State and Alex Whiting. He is a visiting professor of practice at Harvard Law and the current Deputy Specialist Prosecutor at the Kosovo Specialist Prosecutor's Office in The Hague. He previously served as a prosecutor at the International Criminal Court and also the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. And both gentlemen join me via Microsoft Teams and Michael Newton talks with us from Tennessee. Michael, welcome to the program. 
Thank you. It's really a joy to be here and a particular joy to have my good friend Alex Whiting on the other end of the line. Alex joins us from The Hague and welcome to you and thanks for staying up so late. Thank you, Carol. It's a pleasure. Well, let me begin with you, Alex Whiting. Based on the evidence we have seen so far, what is your assessment of allegations of war crimes and crimes against humanity in Ukraine and the fact that the Russian invasion itself is seen as a crime of aggression? Right. So with respect to war crimes, there are some pretty clear examples at this point of war crimes. Let's say some pretty striking images that look almost certainly like war crimes. And here I'm talking about Bucha in particular, where there's evidence of civilians who were executed. And we've seen the images of them in the street, sometimes with their hands bound. That's pretty clearly a crime. And there the question is going to be who's responsible. There have also been, as you mentioned in your opening, instances where civilian targets have been hit, the train station, the theater. Those may very well be war crimes. Those will be harder to prove because for those cases, prosecutors will have to prove that the attackers had an intent, intentionally targeted the civilians. It looks that way, but to prove that, you have to prove that there were no military targets, that it wasn't an accident, that they didn't have bad intelligence and so forth. With respect to the crime of aggression, and maybe we'll get into that in more detail, that's a separate crime. That's a crime about how the war started. And there, I think there is virtually universal consensus that the attack was an act of aggression and that the leaders of the attack, Putin and those close around him, have committed the crime of aggression. That's more complicated because the International Criminal Court doesn't have jurisdiction over that crime, but we can get into more detail about that in our conversation. Thank you for that. And now I'd like to turn to Mike Newton for your reflections on the same question. Well, I think it's a perfect segue, actually, to begin with aggression, which is where Alex stopped. You know, we did this in World War II in the International Military Tribunal, created under the London Charter, and we call that crimes against peace. So now we come full circle with the crime of aggression. The trick is that in the intervening years, we have a richly developed body of law that we didn't have then in the technical details of these conventions, and of course, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of cases. So when we begin to assess the question that Alex posed, artillery shelling in urban areas, we've got our Srebrenica cases, we've got Martic, we've got a whole line of these cases and a huge body of jurisprudence and state practice that we didn't have in the World War II era. And for that reason, the technical craftsmen of the law and the craftspeople here are busily trying to build, Alex referred to this indirectly, the cases of individual responsibility. The trick is to say that that substantive event constitutes a violation of the law. And now let us do with great precision, build a precise criminal case about which intermediate commander or which political official or even which senior officials are legally responsible for that. And here I just want to make one comment about the architecture that we've built over the last 30-ish years or so, it really is a deeply integrated architecture. Certainly the ICC, which has gotten a lot of publicity and a lot of notoriety, of course, for its ongoing investigation, that's an important part of the system. It's the permanent court. They had an ongoing jurisdiction and investigations already. But the Geneva Conventions give, in these cases, universal jurisdiction for violations of either occupation law committed against protected persons or intentionally targeting civilians, a wide range of other grave breaches of the conventions where an array of domestic states have jurisdiction. And then, of course, we've seen in Alex's current effort, 
we've seen it in Sierra Leone and in other places where there's been regional consensus and you've set up special mechanisms to prosecute some slice of cases where there's jurisdiction established under other authorities. So the point being that it's impossible right now, as we sit here today, no matter how skeptical somebody is, to argue that no Russians will ever be prosecuted, that there will be no viable criminal cases there. We don't know. And therefore, it's eminently important, earth-shatteringly important, in my view, that we build criminal cases from the ground up, and then we work to bring the right perpetrators into the right places with the right jurisdiction. But more importantly, charges that can be supported beyond a reasonable doubt based on the existing body of law. So the premium right now is on really complex, detailed investigations. Well, back to you, Alex Whiting, to talk about those detailed investigations. Of course, it's rather difficult, I imagine, during an ongoing war, but we are seeing a lot of documentation. We're seeing the use of cell phone videos and people on the ground, the OSCE. Talk about the importance of this stage and why it's important to press on with the compilation and documentation of these alleged atrocities. So you're right, Carol, this is a critical stage. In the immediate days after these apparent crimes have been committed, collecting evidence is very important. And I will say that one of the advantages that the investigators and prosecutors have at the moment is that they actually have access to some of these crime scenes or apparent crime scenes which isn't always the case. Sometimes investigators don't have access for weeks or months or even years. Here in Bucha, they were there in the aftermath and in other locations as well. And that is important because, as Mike suggested, and he's right, the evidence here has to be reliable, it has to be properly collected, and it has to be sufficient to prove these charges beyond reasonable doubt. So investigators are doing detailed examinations of the apparent crime scenes. And I say that to emphasize that these crimes have to be proven. And so they're collecting physical evidence, forensic evidence, talking to witnesses, collecting videos. There's been information about intercepts being obtained. There's a huge amount of information and evidence that is pouring in right now. And part of the challenge is managing all of that information, managing all the different investigators that are collecting that information, and ensuring that it is being properly collected so that it can be used in a case. So back to you, Michael Newton. How much progress is being made on the ground already by the ICC, OSCE, and other groups that are compiling and documenting evidence? And could you please address the challenge of managing and centralizing this process so that the evidence is properly cataloged and viable for the next stage? Well, even in your question, you referenced the difficulty in a fragmented system. When I say that we have a mosaic of architecture that interconnects, you know, having done these investigations on the ground, it really takes cooperation between these various mechanisms. The idea that a single group or a single country or a single intelligence service or even, you know, the single court, the ICC, documents the cases and everybody else feeds into one source, but then that source or that one jurisdiction becomes the only place that evidence can be used, to me is antithetical to the very modern structure of the field. Alex is totally right that we have intelligence from various countries. We have imagery, both private and public and governmental. We have witnesses, and in this case, I would say particularly refugees. You know, I've done eyewitness statements from refugees. They only had one small piece of evidence, but it was a really important corroborating piece of evidence to supplement 
other pieces of physical evidence. And so what you do need is this compilation, and then I think an open system of dissemination, where any country, any prosecutor, any court with jurisdiction can draw from these interconnected efforts. Because no single prosecutor, no single jurisdiction, and of course, remember that the beneficiaries of much of this evidence will be Ukrainian domestic courts themselves and Ukrainian judges, because these crimes were committed on their territory. So that's really what we're doing here, is working together, because these offenses are the common heritage of mankind, therefore this is a common effort. The way I describe it, it's an all-hands-on-deck effort, an all-source, any country, any group, any individual that wants to contribute, whether it's with forensics evidence or imagery, should be entitled to contribute. And then we have to be able to disseminate that information where it's going to be the most useful to a particular prosecutor who, remember, is not bringing every single charge they could possibly imagine. They're bringing the pointed charges against the specific individuals that they can prove. And that's kind of where we have to work together because you may have other jurisdictions that can prove other offenses. And we just have to work together in a cohesive way. And do you see that type of cooperation taking place right now? It's beginning to emerge. We've had some successes, and Alex and I could both give examples of failures to coordinate. I think just as we now have this really complex, interconnected set of jurisprudence, the cooperative investigative patterns here between the U.S. and the European Union and other domestic courts and civil society, we've been documenting, for example, occupation law violations in Ukraine for the last several years in Crimea particularly. So there's a host of people on the ground that are ready, willing, and able to contribute at this point as well. We just have to make sure that we build a system with the connectivity that hears their voice and hears the voices of victims and works together to bring these cases every place they can possibly be brought. And only then can we say we're approximating justice. You're listening to Encounter on The Voice of America. My guests are Michael Newton, former senior advisor to the Ambassador-at-Large for War Crimes Issues at the State Department, from whom you just heard, and Alex Whiting. He's visiting professor of practice at Harvard Law and currently deputy specialist prosecutor at the Kosovo Specialist Prosecutor's Office in The Hague. And we're discussing how Russia can be held accountable for alleged atrocities and war crimes committed in Ukraine. This is a reminder that our Encounter podcast is available on our website at voanews.com slash encounter. Well, here's a shout out to a loyal Facebook fan, Mohsin Al-Shabani from Adiwania, Iraq. If you want to hear your name and home country on the air, please send an email to encounter at voanews.com or like us and leave a comment on our Facebook page. Well, back to Alex Whiting to talk about the best venue for achieving accountability. We talked about the ICC. Is that the best venue because Russia is not a member, the United States isn't a member? Are those impediments? Before I answer your question, I want to just say something that was bouncing around in our discussion before, which is one thing that we've seen in the last 20 years that's been a real game changer in these investigations of war crimes in various places, and we're really seeing it now, is really the democratization, in a way, of evidence collection. Mike kind of referenced this, that there are many different organizations that are kind of geared up to do this kind of evidence collection. A lot of civil society is learning and developing best practices to collect for criminal cases, but also ordinary citizens now with cell phones are oftentimes the immediate witnesses who gather information in real time of crimes being committed. That has really 
empowered investigators because there's this proliferation of actors who can collect evidence. And as Mike said, here in this case, there are many different investigators and their questions about the proper venue. You know, I think the central investigating body right now is the International Criminal Court. They are the real focus and many states are acting to assist the ICC both with more funds, resources, seconding personnel, and evidence and information. There is also the possibility that other states can bring cases. Ukraine itself can bring cases and they have an intensive investigation effort underway. They have hundreds of investigators who are collecting evidence. All of these venues do face a similar challenge, which is ultimately how to get the accused into the courtroom. I agree with Mike. You can't say today that that will never happen. There are many cases where we thought an accused senior official, political leader, head of state would never face a courtroom, and they did. It can happen. But there are also many reasons why even before an arrest occurs or before someone gets to the courtroom, just the investigation, the process of collecting the evidence, and arrest warrants have an important impact on victims, on potential perpetrators, on actual perpetrators, sending signals that these are in fact crimes, or at least they're alleged as crimes. So the venue questions will sort themselves out over time, and hopefully one day, if there are people charged, they do get to a courtroom. But again, I think it's important to emphasize that the process, starting now, the process of investigation and collecting this evidence and documenting it is really essential. That's an excellent point, Mike Newton. This idea of a democratization of the collection of evidence, all types of people actual victims, members of civil society, journalists are contributing. What is your take on the venue? Is that also something that it's better that there are all types of venues where charges can be made? The ICC is maybe the gold standard, but not the only place. And again, the impediment being Russia not being a member, the United States, to what extent can it play a role, even though it is not, you know, a member we're seeing here in this country, you know, even among Republicans who generally oppose the ICC, that sentiment is starting to change, given the depredations by the Russian regime in Ukraine. So let me kind of start back with the U.S. piece. One of the things that happened while I was still at the State Department was we negotiated a particular provision of U.S. law that permits cooperation with the ICC, which the United States has, notwithstanding the larger political rhetoric, a fairly documented, fairly complete record of cooperating in particular cases in a pragmatic way when it's appropriate. That legislation is on the books. It already gives us the ability to cooperate on these cases in Ukraine against Russian officials where it's appropriate. But that's where I think we have to have the mechanisms in place to support not only the ICC, which is totally appropriate, but also domestic jurisdictions or any other jurisdiction that gets created by process. But I sort of wanted to extend Alex's thought, which I thought was spot on about the democratization. There's two other really important aspects of this. One is the fact that any Russian officials, civilian or military, who face trial will always do so against the backdrop of a fairly intensive political process. So the more evidence that is out there and the more public it is and the more clear it is absolutely helps document the specificity or the granularity of particular charges. That's vitally important. But I think it also has a secondary effect of sustaining political will here, because that really is the long pole in the tent over the long haul. In the Balkans, people did not forget Srebrenica, and it helped fuel the long, lengthy process of getting these trials moving and continuing funding and continuing the flow of evidence and the transfer of suspects 
until you worked your way up to Milosevic and Karadzic and Mladic, General Mladic. It took the heat of the political moment that didn't fade over time. As, of course, the world gets distracted with many other things, the investigation and the documentation and the pursuit of Russian suspects here, and I might add suspects from other nationalities who commit crimes in this conflict, that documentation, I think, helps sustain the political will over time. And there's something else going on that I think is almost equally important, which is in almost real time, the revisionists take over. The historical revision, the disinformation, in some cases, deliberate propaganda. And I think it's really important as quickly as possible to get to truth, to get to real evidence. One of the examples from a long time ago, when the Halabja massacre happened and the gassing of Kurds in Halabja, the immediate press accounts that night on national world media were about an intense conflict between Iraq and the Iranian forces. Well, that was false. And it took the granular evidence to say, no, this was a deliberate attack against a civilian population, and here's how it unfolded in granular detail. So I think what's going to happen over time is that we do exactly the same thing in Bukha and Mariupol and Kharkiv and some of these other places where there's allegations thrown around. We don't pay attention to the media. We pay attention to the actual evidence produced in granular detail. And that is vitally important to sustaining momentum towards prosecutions of appropriate perpetrators over the long haul. More excellent points by you, Michael Newton. Thank you for that. And back to you, Alex Whiting. We'll have to wrap up shortly, but I would like you to address this crime of aggression that you said that can't be brought to the ICC. How important is that particular charge, the actual invasion, which is a violation of Ukraine's sovereignty, you know, as as a crime? Right. As Mike said, the crime of aggression was the motivating central crime at Nuremberg. War crimes and crimes against humanity were also prosecuted, but the real mover of the Nuremberg case was the crime of aggression. But no international tribunal has prosecuted a case of aggression since Nuremberg, and the ICC only recently got jurisdiction over the crime of, of aggression. But it doesn't apply in this case because of a particular jurisdictional provision that only applies to that crime. And so the ICC cannot prosecute the crime of aggression. But because this is such a clear case of aggression, there are serious discussions underway about creating a separate court, a new court that would be able to prosecute that crime based on Ukraine's jurisdiction. The idea is a court that would be a kind of hybrid international court that would be an agreement between Ukraine and several states or the European Union or maybe the United Nations all these ideas are being bounced around. And that would be a remarkable development because it would allow the prosecution of, of what is a very clear act of aggression in this case. But it would also be historically very significant to have another major prosecution of aggression and resurrect this crime, which, as I said, since Nuremberg has never been prosecuted. Michael Newton, what are your thoughts regarding this crime of aggression and how to address it? since the ICC can't do it in this particular case? Well, I really think we're at a watershed with particularity for the crime of aggression, but also I think for the larger integrity of the field of international criminal justice, whether we want to talk about war crimes deliberately committed on a massive scale against civilians or ongoing crimes against humanity. There's an old piece of liturgy that Robert Jackson, the American prosecutor at Nuremberg, used to quote. He would say, grant us grace to fearlessly contend against evil. And in that context, then the idea is that aggression 
is the macro crime that carries within it the seeds of all of these other crimes. And for that reason, I think you're seeing a watershed, you're seeing political ramifications in the United Nations, you're seeing realignments in world politics, and Alex is right. It'll be remarkable to create a separate process to address what is absolutely a violation of the most fundamental principle of international law, which is enshrined in Article 2 of the UN Charter. The idea that the use of transnational force against states is limited to those very clear legal principles, and you can't abuse those. That's all the time we have on this edition of Encounter. I'd like to thank my guests, Michael Newton, former senior advisor to the ambassador at large for war crimes issues at the State Department, and Alex Whiting, the current deputy specialist prosecutor at the Kosovo Specialist Prosecutor's Office in The Hague. Encounter was produced in Washington with technical assistance from Rick Pantaleo. I'm Carol Castiel. Join me again next week for another Encounter on The Voice of America.